Greetings, Raise Community 2023 is here, and I am here with today's guest, Dr. Matt Hodge, who serves as Vice President for University Relations and President of the University of Maryland College Park Foundation. Welcome, Matt. Oh, welcome, Brent. Really excited to be here, and uh, you've set a high bar, so I'm excited to participate. Well, your name came up uh, by way of our recent episode with David Bennett, and you and I were just chatting a little bit before we kicked off. Uh, David leads the advancement effort at Howard University. Would encourage everybody to listen to that episode. But uh, but I'm glad that um, you know that that resonated uh, with you. Uh, I loved hearing David's story, and I'm excited to learn more about yours. One of the things that we've been asking. Uh, Matt, just to kick off the the show has been really to learn a little bit more about your own higher education journey, which oftentimes can be a catalyst for wanting to get involved in the field longer term. And my understanding is that was definitely the case for you. But take me back, uh, junior, senior year of high school, who was that guy? What was he into? And what led him to the University of Florida? You know, um, I uh, was a transplant from Southern Illinois. Uh, Carbondale, another great college town, but um, didn't know a lot about the University of Florida. You know, I think that. Wait, so you you grew up in Southern Illinois? I did, yeah. And uh, my my parents from, from Carbondale, parents, thinking Florida for college. Yeah, my dad uh, moved, and uh, you know, when you're you grow up around the Salukis, the idea of uh, the beach in Florida didn't seem terrible, and. Um, had lived in Florida until most recently, uh, the bulk of my life after the age of 15. But, um, you know, that that junior space, you know, I was collecting swatch watches and growing a mullet like uh, everyone else uh, in my uh, my high school in that age age appropriate uh, space. We'll, uh, we'll include a link to the mullet uh, in the show notes. So everybody yeah. just take a look. Yeah, let's let's avoid it and, and skip to it. But you know, that that opportunity to uh, once getting accepted to the University of Florida, um, you know, and arriving uh, like everyone, you know, moving into the dorm and all of those things. But um, like a lot of individuals, the cost was a huge draw to the university. It was a great university and certainly much, much better today. Like every alum ever says, you know, couldn't get in there uh, today. But for me, it was the cost. It was a, a real uh, factor for my family. So we knew we needed to go to a in-state public institution. Um, wasn't a tremendous uh, fan of the Gators at the time. And then the year I arrived, so did a young upstart coach by the name of Steve Spurrier. So got to kind of uh, see uh, the Gators transform in real time, which was exciting. But I needed a job, Brent. And a friend of mine, uh, said, hey, there's a job with the phonathon. And uh, my freshman year, I just uh, signed up and uh, much like David, you know, I think David started uh, banging the phones a little bit earlier than me. But um, this idea of being able to connect with alums as a real profession, uh, I was blessed. It was introduced at a very, very uh, early part of my kind of professional uh, career. So walk me through that kind of early memory, right? You're 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 probably not too versed in just the idea of philanthropy. Um, you know, maybe you get a little bit of orientation to help frame it 
for you as you think about your own, you know, financial aid or scholarship experience. Um, but mostly you just sort of start dialing, right? Yeah, the, the, the elements that I love, and that's why I love to hire folks that have kind of annual giving experience. Um, you know, one, you're really comfortable with no, meaning the vast majority of the calls that you're making never go through. The second vast majority are just hard no's. Just so getting to a place where you're comfortable that the majority of the output is unfulfilling um, prepares you for this idea that, wait, you know, these moments that um, I'm talking to a real life human being should be relished. And for me as a student, it was, um, I was able to kind of access both sides of my brain was able to build a plan, read a script, and then evaluate how I did at the end of the night in real time. Um, and then as I, you know, began to kind of understand how this was connected to fulfillment rates, um, renewal rates, and you start to understand this ecosystem um, of alumni uh, solicitation and just outreach um, it, it, you get excited by it because there's a data component, um, that is really important. There's a soft skills component. There's a planning component. There's a luck component and all these things kind of coexist in the phone room. And at least they did in the phone room and in, uh, kind of my upbringing. And so that was exciting. And, um, I wanted, I wanted more, that's for sure. I would imagine, so you get the, you know, do not answers, right? You get the hard no's. There's probably the other uh, segment, which is they're thrilled to hear from you. I bet it's the the in-between where it gets really interesting. You know, if you think about like the swing voter, you know, I, I could give, I could also very well not give, which is probably what I did last year. Um, I don't know if you have any memories around kind of, pulling somebody over to the, to the light side of the force. Yeah. Well, I, I love the, I love the uh, star Wars reference. I, you know, I think um, you learn a lot about human behavior and um, you also learn about kind of big data. You get a front row seat in kind of this um, how folks behave and um, how to make some um, assessments. And so, you know, and, somebody that graduated and has been out 40 years and is never given, you're never thrilled to make those calls. I mean, that is just a, a reality of the business, but boy, you're, you're not kidding. When you turn one of those from the pile that is really scary as a young caller, those are the cards that you get because you're not going to make them any worse. Meaning they've been out a long time. Nobody has ever been able to say something that converts them into a donor. But as we know, it's timing is so much uh, a part of the work that we do. And it's another reason that, you know, I think the lessons learned about, you know, when someone is saying no, there's a difference between no, never, and no, not right now. And no, I need some healing. And, uh, you know, asking me for money is is not going to be a part of that healing in my relationship with the university. But here are some other things that we might consider. Um, that's a complex landscape. And, you know, when you can pull someone in to the light, uh, certainly at the age of 18 and 19, it feels like 
you got $50 from a uh, liberal arts and sciences, never giver, you feel like you hit a home run. So, I love that. Um, and so I would imagine, right, you're, you're in there with a group of peers. Some students maybe had the opposite experience, which is this is definitely not for me, or I could never imagine doing this longer term. I'm curious if you, I don't know, I've seen any patterns emerge or have a perspective on like why it clicks for some people like you and why others just find it uh, to, to be maybe the polar opposite experience. Well, I think, I think one, like everyone, I was just trying to get a paycheck. And so yeah. I think what, what you quickly figure out is there are bigger paychecks in a college community than working at the phone thon And so I think that weeds some folks out that they realize um, that, you know, they, they like it, they don't love it, and they can make more money. So we never get a chance to win them over. Um, for me, my mom was always like, I promise you, uh, this job will connect you to opportunity that you you can never see. Why did she feel that way? Because she's just like talking to alums every night in a place that is designed to grow and develop relationships with the university is a place where it increases the likelihood of luck. Meaning that my, the chances of me um, having a conversation with someone that changes the direction of, of my um, thinking or my professional arc is more likely to happen there than at a, you know, uh, working at, you know, a bar or, or some yeah. other opportunity. And, it, and uh, that's great advice. I mean, it's amazing when you think about, you know, there will be career center, career lab sessions or webinars for students to learn how to send an email to an alum or learn how to reach out to an alum on LinkedIn. And meanwhile, yeah. you're hammering the phone 50 times a night. Yeah. And I, you know, I got very quickly got a sales job out of college because of that experience. But um, very, tell me more about that. Was it in the area? Uh, yeah. Like, and it was a short, very short stint. I liked it, but immediately, um, uh, my boss and mentor at the University of Florida, uh, David Whitten, he was like, Matt, there's an opportunity to run the phonathon at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And um, I was a little bit of a gator snob. I was, I'm like, I don't know anything about UCF. Um, but I was like, let's do it. It's a, it's a great opportunity. And, and they, hired me and it changed my career forever. It was awesome. So tell me about that because, you know, one thing to kind of call your alums and talk about your student experience and have that sort of shared affinity. Another thing to sort of immediately move into, I'm a professional fundraiser. Yeah. I'm going to leverage the strategies and the lessons learned, even though I might not have the, the personal deep brand affinity to UCF, I'm going to bring the system, the process, the playbook and execution um, what was it like? And also UCF being a pretty unique place in really the young, state of yeah. higher education, especially during the time you were there, probably one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing institution in the country. Yeah, really big, but very young alumni base. Um, you know, I saw Mark Cuban, uh, they did an interview and he talked about kind of his career arc and he, he really talked about timing and he just, 
he was like five years early or too late. Mark's a totally different guy. Uh, and I think about that a lot. For me, coming out of that really, really cool um, training ground at UF, I got an advertising degree, which I think was just a perfect complement, skill set, journalism school, strong writing component, great storytelling narrative. Um, you com combine that with the phone experience and then stepping in at UCF where the phone was really starting to um, not emerge. Phonathons were a really common thing, but we were moving to predictive dialers. We were taking uh, big data approaches um, in the really early stages. So the ability for me to install those dialers, begin to build out data models for how we um, kind of attack these large data sets and then train the students, hire the students, execute, evaluate the plans nightly. So you're really being able to do some really um, complicated um, um, program development at a, at a relatively young age. You figure just coming right out of college, being given a budget and really free reign to execute that. So a lot of learning on the job, a lot of mistakes. And um, for me, um, I look back on my time at UCF, almost 10 years, you know, I was really given a, a great deal of autonomy to develop. Um, and, and I just look at that and I'm like, you look at the way the solicitation model has evolved, look at alumni participation rates nationally and all of these factors, you know, I, I hit this window um, from a career standpoint that was perfect. It allowed me to grow into my job. Um, too often, I, I look at folks that are coming up and um, they're they're just looking to the horizon to the next thing. And, you know, I had a good 10 years of fundamental um, growth where I was allowed to grow and push myself. But um but without kind of jumping to that next thing. And, and I think if I had come five minute, five years earlier, five minute, five years late, it would have, uh, it wouldn't have worked out. So I, I know there's a great deal of gratitude on me that there was a lot of luck involved in that timing. Well, tell me about that because it is, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, in your seat and it's pretty rare for folks to have a 10 year run in the first job effectively out of college. And, you know, my assumption would be you had to believe in the institution as you got to know it. You had to believe in the leadership there. And you already referenced the growth opportunities. But but what what led to that level of of tenure early in your career? Well, they they paid for a master's and a most of a Ph.D., which was great. It was um they uh, gave me a great deal of autonomy and invested in me at a time when I was really developing my career. The president at the time, John Hitt, um, had a really, really tr uh, transformational uh, you know, vision, and that was to partner with the community in a really authentic way. And it resonated with alums, it resonated with our partners in the community. And so by for me to have annual giving when the major gift model was really evolving 
I was able to run the part of the program that had a, all this upside. So every year we were generating and breaking ground and trying new things and instituting new programs. Um, so I got to kind of grow with the the university through that. And it made that investment of time. It never once felt like, you know, I was um, stagnating. And I think that's, um, you know, I think those, as I see those windows shorten with folks, I really caution them. And, um, you know, you, if you're chasing dollars, you're probably making a, a really big mistake that you won't fully realize until much later in your career. But but I look at that first stop and and just staying there at the right time um, as is probably one of the biggest predictors of my my overall success. Tell me about the decision to pursue continuing education, which it does seem like in a sector where, you know, compensation can only move so much, et cetera. Like continuing education is a tremendous benefit that is pretty rarely accessed from what I can tell. And I don't know the policies yeah. around who gets what and how it works. I'm sure yeah. it's very different at, at, at different institutions. But what was the catalyst for you to act on that? And then what advice would you have? And, and just for context, Matt pursued both his uh, master of public administration and then uh, a doctorate in philosophy. In, yeah, in public affairs. Yeah. Um, I I would just say um, a year is going to go by whether you do anything with it or not. And if you have an opportunity uh, to get a degree paid for and your um you and the organization you're working for will will compensate you for it. Um, you need to treat that like any other benefit and you need to commoditize that. And so if a if a company is willing to allow you to take off from work to do those things and not use personal time or annual leave, and um there's a way to to turn that into a cash value. And then when you think about it recharged my battery. So, you know, I, I was interfacing with a whole other part of the university. It strengthened my connection so that it made me a better fundraiser um, because I, I was a more authentic um, partner. Um, and I just grew through it. You know, I think there were moments during my PhD where, you know, I could feel my brain <laughs> Uh, you know, I was pushing myself and that feels really good. Just like a workout, you know, when you're, when you're pushing and working that muscle and there were moments during, uh, not as much in my master's degree, but during my PhD, uh, program, I, I was surrounding myself with, with folks that were, uh, exceedingly smarter than me and really pushing myself. And, and I could feel, um, growth taking place, which was exciting. And it was fun. And so after that 10-year run, you had the opportunity to serve as vice president at Seminole State College of Florida from UCF, which today has almost, you know, let's call it 300,000 alumni or in that in that ballpark to, uh, you know, a, an institution with maybe 30, 40,000. Yeah, totally different model. Um, my boss at the time and um, well, I don't need, I don't know if it was my boss, but a mentor pulled me aside and was, uh, said, you know, you're leaving UCF, which is this public four-year institution, and you're going to Seminole, which is a community college at the time, now a state college. Um, you're moving in the wrong direction, Matt. 
And um, I always have kept that feedback because I think the perception of that move was real. And I think sometimes <clears throat> folks cloud their decision making based on the optics of the decision um, rather than I, I had an inventory of what skills I had a really good muscle memory and what skills I wasn't being able to access in my role at UCF. And the idea to, to work directly with the president, E.M. McGee, another transformational leader. She uh, invested in me and, and took a chance on me. Um, you work with a board and shift to a model where most, if not all, of the major gift activity that was going to be put up on the organization would be based on the efforts that I had kind of put together and planned. And so less of an annual giving fundraising model, although elements of it would would follow me. But um, again, now in this this stage, I stayed five years and um, was able to just accomplish some amazing things for me professionally. Um, but I, I've had folks pull me aside and they're like, man, this just doesn't make sense on paper. And I tell them about my own um, personal growth, my ability to talk about impact. You know, when you provide a $200 scholarship for a nursing student and on the graduation day, you find out that she's a single mother, she brings her kids to the graduation, and that you know that sending an RN out into the world is going to do amazing things. But you also know that the arc of her family in terms of how much they're earning, their access to benefits, their own access to health care, you're seeing these transformational things take place for really relatively low dollar amounts. And so um, having a front row seat to um, raising dollars and then seeing them transform lives was was amazing. And so I'm a huge fan of our community colleges. I think uh, they are an amazing uh, resource that we need to amplify in public education. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And we haven't had too much um, representation among community college advancement leaders, which is something we should try to do better. Uh, we definitely welcome uh, recommendations from you on that front. So now uh, we segue back to Gainesville, back to the University of Florida, roughly 15 years or so after <laughs> you had graduated and, and accepted that opportunity at UCF. And so coming back home uh, 15 years later, um, which aspects of it felt the same? What felt different? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think one, I um, left Seminole as a vice president reporting to the president um, to go to the University of Florida as a senior director reporting to the dean of the College of Education. The same mentor that told me my career was moving in the wrong direction pulled me aside and said, Matt, what are you doing? You're, you're leaving this gig where you're running the show in Orlando at Seminole and um, you're going to Gainesville and uh, taking a title cut, probably a pay cut, and um, I don't get it. And so for me, I had a young family, uh, my wife Erin and I, both in this fundraising space, um, we knew that we were not developing 
uh, muscle memory around major gift activity. And that meaning developing $100,000 plus proposals um, every day of the week uh, and doing that uh, for year over year over year wasn't the prospect pools that we were working with. And so we were um, given an opportunity to go and join the University of Florida as they were wrapping up their uh, $1.7 billion campaign, Florida Tomorrow. And we um, were in a position to now ask individuals to make million dollar plus commitments regularly as a part of our work in a much, much different way. And it became very transformational. So in one sense, um, the Gainesville that I knew, meaning I could, was very, was the same, meaning the midtown restaurants and those aspects, the Parts of the foundation that I remembered from my days as a phonathon student were um, there. There were individuals that knew me when I was a caller. So that was totally crazy. But the <laughs> um, scope of what I was being asked to do at the, the university was uh, entirely different. And it was really different for me, meaning that I was jumping into the deep end of the pool in terms of now, can you raise money, major gift money, as 100% a part of your job at a high level where you're surrounded by individuals that are doing the same thing at a high level? And can you um, can you leave the University of Florida better than you found it in a place where um, a, there's a high level of competition and the bar for excellence was set pretty darn high? And so it was, uh, it was awesome. Can I ask, uh, it sounds like the objective was to really build this specific skill set, really elevate your experience and work sets and reps around the major gifts, $100,000 plus level. Um, but you had a, you know, 12, 13 year run there. And did you have the sense when you were either considering the opportunity or, or getting recruited or however it, it um, uh, happened, did you feel like the upward trajectory was there? And was that part of the consideration or did things just sort of work out maybe better than you would have expected? Well, I think they always, hopefully they always work out better than you expected. I think, the, you know, there's a healthy um, understanding that not everything works out exactly the way you envision it. Hopefully it works out, works out better. Um, you know, I've always bet on myself, but, you know, in a context, I think that's something that maybe is a bumper sticker or um, things people say. But I, when I say I bet on myself, I've tried to do it in the context of, okay, what, how can I continue to grow and get better? And then, um, and not, how does this look on my resume? How will this look on my LinkedIn page? Am I making $10,000 more than I made? What are the honest um, areas where I need to continue to grow? And I, I, you know, one of the things that you kind of talked about in preparation was mentors. And for me, finding individuals, sometimes they're with you a short period of time, sometimes longer, that just 
talk to you about here are the places where I think you can elevate your standard of excellence um, individually, or here are some areas where if you want to be great, you need to go deeper. And I think too often we view those conversations as painful as opposed to, you know, what, where do I need to grow? I knew I talked to an individual about a position outside the state of Florida uh, when I was at Seminole and they said, Matt, we'd hire you tomorrow. You just don't have the big university experience. Um, you just don't have the kind of that major gift experience that we're looking for. And so I, I knew I needed to invest in myself and that was going to require a willingness uh, to move and to go somewhere where I knew I could be successful, get those sets and reps that you talked about um, and build that out and and grow from it. Um, did I think it would equate to, you know, 12 years, two campaigns and uh, continued growth and opportunity? I, I don't think, um, you know, I, I led the Alumni Association for a two year period, which was a, a personal honor as an alum. But as a, a major gift fundraiser, um, I never saw that in the cards. And so, you know, I think there are these twists and turns in your career that yeah, I think you have to be really open to them. And instead of looking at it as something, well, this wasn't in the plan, um, I encourage folks to you know, jump in and see what happens. All right. I have two follow-up questions then about the time at Florida, because I know that it is a very matrixed environment and that in some of the roles you worked in, you were in a position that had to very much be one of influence, but, out, but without control. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you worked with a lot of deans in that work. And so I want you to imagine in your mind the best fundraising dean you ever worked with at the University of Florida. I also want you to think of the worst fundraising dean that you worked with at the University of Florida and say their name right now. Just kidding. You don't have to say their name, but you're thinking about them. And I just want you to share characteristics of what makes a great fundraising dean and a poor fundraising dean. Yeah, I think. Um... And to all of you at University of Florida, trying to imagine or guess who he's thinking about, just keep it to yourself, okay? Yeah. Well, if they're listening, uh, they, you know, I'm sure they've got their own list. Um, I want to, I'll caveat to the um, relationships that we develop with academic leaders, primarily our deans and directors, um, that those relationships at the University of Florida are the reason I'm at the University of Maryland today. Um, and so there's no such thing as these kind of uh, relationships um, being wasted. And I think it it revealed itself to me um, when the number of people that had called to ask about me uh, from Maryland that followed up with with deans or former deans at the University of Florida um, blew me away. And the um, having a commitment to um, being consistent over time uh, professionally paid a huge dividend. And it's one that I look back now and go, man, I did not see that. And so when you talk about um, the characteristics of of a good dean or, uh, you know, I, I think there are challenging deans. 
Um, and I think those that end up uh, working really, really well, but I want to make sure I frame it with these relationships are way more important than you'll ever imagine professionally. And they have the potential to determine long-term success because the academy is a really, really small cohort of, of really, um, really great individuals. So to answer the question, I think that the challenging deans are those that feel as though they already have the answer and um, are unwilling to kind of give you an opportunity um, to help them uh, develop a process. And so um, when you have a dean that has already told you how good they are as a fundraiser, and the data would suggest you can't find data to reinforce that that claim. And when you um, find alums that that can't also corroborate this um, fundraising prowess, you know that that's challenging. And so you're trying to navigate the reality of the data, and oftentimes that's simply trying to get them to understand you know, the potential that we have within their current population isn't the same as the potential that they had at the, the previous unit uh, that they joined you from. And so they're, they're coming from a different place, but expecting a different a different result. And so those things um, are a part of that. The, the ones that I think that have been really, really um, great to work with, they have a, a very simple vision and it it doesn't change much over time if you think about uh two um terms of five years you know you've got this this relatively short window um for a leader and in most cases those terms are getting um smaller and shorter with our our academic leadership but if you can get a great dean that can stay on message uh, for five, seven, ten years, um, you, you're going to raise a, a lot of money, and um, that that laser focused vision and clarity um, allows professionals, even emerging professionals. You don't have to be the greatest fundraiser, but if you're good, you can grow with that dean, where the two of you understand your role. You understand. Here's when the dean is in the best environment. Here's when I'm in in my best environment, and you agree on that alchemy, uh, so that you can kind of put yourself in a position uh, to achieve at a high at a high level. And so, you know, I think that clear vision um, and providing enough whiteboard so that an alum can come in at, and if you just tell someone, here's the answer donors at a high level, um, some will say yes, others will want to see themselves in that vision. And so you've got to have a dean that can um, allow enough room for another voice. And um, I don't know if that makes sense, Brent. Oh, it does. Thanks for sharing. Here's the second part um, based on that experience. This is a true or false question. True or false the Alumni Association should be a primary lead generation engine for the development team. True. I um, I never in a million years, I, I early in my career, um, 
kind of just always felt like it was smoke and mirrors and then um, was given the gift that all professionals should be given. The thing that you think uh, or don't fully understand, you should have to run it for a little bit. And then I, I spent some time with the UF Alumni Association and I just saw all of this amazing opportunity to connect the dots and was immediately just struck by um, how much opportunity existed in doing lead generation and helping to develop programs that were complementary, making sure that, um, you know, if, if we agree that these 10,000 suspects look really interesting, but it, we, you're never going to have enough development officers to qualify those 10,000 people. And so you've got to get really cagey and you've got to use every tool in the toolbox. And Brent, as you know, you've got to identify a few other tools. Um, but I think folks that create this Hatfield and McCoy approach to alumni and development um, are creating their own problem because it it need not exist. You have a group that with just a little uh, intentionality in terms of strategy development and rewards and engagement, um, the Alumni Association can and will generate amazing opportunities for your frontline major gift team. No, I mean, look, I obviously agree. Uh, shocker to our listeners here. But uh, I think the reality is the Alumni Association or Alumni Relations Group, uh, whether it's indirectly or directly, is going to be a massive source of lead generation for fundraisers. It just all too often historically has been indirectly or almost unintentionally. And I think mm -hmm. if you flip the the narrative and just feel okay or feel really good about um, trying to create meaningful experiences, meaningful connectivity that want that results in accelerating or growing philanthropy sooner in the donor life cycle. That's a good thing. And um, and sometimes, you know, when you get into the "but I'm a fundraiser, not a fundraiser" debate, um, that can be lost. Yeah, that's I. You know, I think those those things are really are really challenging. I, you know, I, I, the thing I try to do, you know, when I poke fun at myself is you know, the, these biases, whether it's a bias of community college or, you know, move, your career's moving backwards or, you know, my hesitation uh, to understand alumni work early in my career, you know, I, all of those things are normal. And so, there, you know, you, it's just a reality. And, and I think now we're getting to a place where um, we can just kind of work through it and just say, hey, you know, um, the alumni folks uh, historically and presently probably feel underappreciated in a major gift fundraising model. And so I'm trying to to turn the, the uh, tables on that and make sure they feel um, engaged and just a part, as much a part of it. Um, but that's that's probably a reality. And so that's something we need to talk about and and just lean into. So. So after leaving Carbondale, uh, you're pretty, pretty connected there in Florida, pretty, uh, pretty deep uh, roots planted there. Yet probably this time last year, uh, you know, you, you're exploring new opportunities and ultimately have the opportunity to lead the operation at the University of Maryland. That's a big move, you know, new region, new culture. I'm sure you've been, you know, traveling all over the country for for decades now, but 
Tell me about the decision to um, throw your hat in the ring, any lessons learned during that process and what the experience has been so far. Yeah, I think one, um, you know, I think the University of Florida, I have to give a lot of credit, has a really progressive talent management uh, program. And so my evolution uh, toward VP was not something that happened quietly. Uh, you know, it, it was something that was a part of a multi-year uh, engagement and professional development plan. Um, you know, our VP at the, at the time, currently VP at Florida, uh, Tom Mitchell, I have to give a lot of a great deal of credit, uh, invested heavily in it, invested in me personally. And so that means I had a professional coach. I had opportunities to take on projects that would allow me to really strengthen some of those blind spots that I had as a leader. Um, and in as a part of that, there were an opportunity to start to look at a landscape of opportunities. And there were uh, a small handful that I thought really aligned with my strengths. Um, Maryland was was always among that group. Um, but I, I needed to, to learn more. And I think when um, a few individuals reached out to me and said, you really need to look at um, this opportunity, the University of Maryland is a really special place. I kind of was like, well, everybody says that. And then had an opportunity to uh, interact with President Daryl Pines and uh, was sold immediately and was a little scared because I, you know, you spend some time in College Park and you see a really, really uh, prototypical land grant institution, uh, part of a relatively uh, small community where the university kind of defines it eight miles away from our nation's capital, but you've got the, the mall, the historic buildings uh, juxtaposed with brand new uh, computer science building, uh, engineering facilities, top-notch athletic facilities. So you've got all these things that are going on. And then you sit down with a president um, that has been successful as a research faculty has been successful as a dean at Maryland in the College of Engineering, um, and now is nestling into the um, early part of his presidency and clearly uh, has a vision for how to transform uh, this university that's already pretty darn good. And, um, you know, I just said, where do I sign? And then uh, had to come back and uh, actually wait to to be extended an offer and uh when that happened uh you know uh Aaron and I knew um this was an amazing opportunity and one that um we would look up look back on and uh nobody uh no mentor was reaching out to me and saying Matt uh you're moving in the wrong direction in fact just the opposite all of the individuals that I've ever worked with uh professionally uh, were like so um, just so excited for the opportunity and um, and I was excited because I, I took enough time to make sure that um, when I arrived you know I would have that skill set to you're never ready Brent you know that but um, you know I think having 
uh, taking that real intentional uh, runway to land in the spot. It was was perfect. And and now six months in uh, to my stay here in College Park, um, you know, I would say it's uh, it's better than I thought it was going to be. Glad to hear that. Tell me about the now best next approach. Yeah. And this was, you know, this is a model. It's not that original, but I think executing it um, in real time and making sure that, that you're consistent too often, I think as leaders, you come in and you feel like you have to prove your worth by putting points on the board or fixing things, moving chairs around, hiring new uh, positions and this now best next approach, which is a discipline that the first thing you're doing is just understanding how we're doing right now. And um, I've so often seen folks be in such a rush to get to the next that they are they haven't brought anyone along that journey. And half the battle is just telling. The, the story of how are we doing? And um, you'd be so surprised at, at I, how many times I've been uh, given a high five and been told I'm doing a great job. And all I've done is simply tell the story of how we're doing right now. And that requires very little original thought. It requires uh, patience, a lot of listening, and then an ability to unpack complex and tell it back to the enterprise in bite-sized pieces that they can digest. And so that process in the first six months of understanding our now and telling the university, here's how we're doing. Um, here's the areas where I think we're really great. And then best, we're just now in this phase, Brent, where we're working with consultants, we're working with other industry leaders, peer group partners, um, discussions like this, I think, play play a role in it. But colliding with individuals that are outside the Maryland echo chamber and sharing information and benchmarking, um, not to, to say here's where we're good, here's where we're bad, but I think really to understand, do we see some trends? Are there some spaces where um, we, we are currently not, uh, we not doing work, but we should be thinking about? And um, you talked about the role of alumni. You start to see uh, FTE blending with some of our peers where those positions aren't, it's not, are you a friend raiser or a fundraiser anymore? It's, there's a, a blending that's taking place where you see lead generation and outreach and some of these things start to look different. So I want to know about that. And you, you see some corporate models that are starting to really look interesting in terms of the way we're engaging corporate community partners. Um, so then, and then next, the next part is just instead of, um, wowing everyone with a 150 page strategic plan that goes on a shelf, it's really just trying to, um, develop very short term. Here's the next couple of steps that are going to move us toward the horizon. Um, and that approach, you know, certainly in this first year, I think has been one, the threat level goes down um, with the internal team. When you when you say, look, we're gonna look at how we're doing, we're gonna talk to our peers and we're gonna begin to chart out next. 
uh, everyone's heart rate goes down and they can start to see themselves being a part of it. We did a strategic outreach to uh, the four primary stakeholder communities. Uh, and I just did face-to-face -face visits, Brent, old school. You know, I we had 271 visits, 38 of them were with internal campus leaders, 152 to alumni donors, 176 with internal team members. That means sitting down with the people that are on your team and just introducing yourself and listening. Uh, 34 visits and now 35, I count today, peer and industry leaders um, where you just have a conversation and begin to share information. Um, we created a dashboard to share that so that what's okay. Matt doing in his first six months, that dashboard um, was open for the organization, our volunteers, the president to see. And just seeing that the vice president was holding himself accountable to yeah. intentional outreach um, that could be tracked and talked about, um, I think people got excited about it. I love that. That is such a, a great example. And I think in any leadership position, there's always a tension between external engagement and internal engagement. And it sounds like, you know, you've been able to strike a balance, but oftentimes I think it's the internal team engagement that gets um, lost because that's not going to be necessarily directly what generates the revenue or hits the number and so forth. And so um, I really appreciate you sharing that. It, honestly, I think about this all the time as, as our team continues to grow, right? What's the balance of, you know, one-to-many conversations, small group breakouts, one-on-one -on -one discussions. Um, but my football coach in college, Coach Estes, once a year, he met with every single person, you know, 110 people on the team. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, I'll never forget those meetings. It was, it was something you really looked forward to. And, uh, and I still think about now and, um, and, and I think there's something to that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, bro. One, one, yeah, go ahead. You observed was it was like 50% of the stakeholder group was internal and 50% was external. And uh, I think everybody was blown away by that. I think they thought it would be 80% external, 20% internal. And yeah. um, every one of them we had a, has a name. And uh, when we go and meet with them, we talk about that visit. And so it wasn't abstract. It was, here's how many external visits that I went on. Here's how many were a part of this stakeholder group. And uh, it was really helpful. I love it. Um, well, I know we're kind of running short on time. A couple points. I, I just have to, you know, comment that when you talked about your best um, phase and, and really trying to get a relative view of performance, it, it is an area where I just think the advancement sector is so well positioned, but radically behind. You know, you look at all of these other sectors that are having real time windows into performance, yeah. real-time view, you know, wh what happened last month. And I feel like so often in the advancement sector, it's survey-based six months after the fiscal year ends, yet we have so much data at our disposal. I personally feel some responsibility. It's it's probably one of the areas that ever true that I'm most excited about, but frankly, you know, least satisfied with, yeah. with what we've been able to do because, you know, it's January 12th inflation is high. 
there's a recession looming, or maybe there's not. What are we seeing in the giving data? It should be a leading indicator for our entire economy. And nobody really knows, except you can look at your data and your peers can look at their data, and then we can ship it out to a consultant and try to have it, you know, mashed up. But then it's six months later. And I, I think just the real-time sense of how are we doing is something that we have to do better at in this sector. Yeah, I couldn't agree, well, agree more. And I, you know, one of the things I'm pushing our team on is um, I want to surround myself with Maryland alums that are doing the kind of work you just described. Yep. And I don't care where they work. And I want to have this uh, community, engagement community, just like we would say, hey, I want everyone that has a an MBA from 1976 to have a reunion. I want all of our big data, social media, engagement, data sales, sales analytics. I, I want that group to um, be on speed dial and I want to bring them together and um, I want to learn from them. And I promise you, they probably are a non-donor from a college that we would have avoided as a phonathon caller. And now as a VP, I'm calling that same individual and I'm saying, hey, I noticed that you work for this company. You've never really given, but your title would suggest you, you have a lot to offer around data analytics. Yep. And so I, I agree. There's so much to learn, but I think, I think we've got to, um, we've got to get more voices. Uh, we got to get out of our own way, Brent. And I, and I think you uh, can, can be one of those voices. I really believe that. Appreciate that. Definitely want to be a fly on the wall uh, when possible. Uh, as we conclude, I want to uh, let you comment on two things. One, I know you've had a lot of great mentor relationships. You've already referenced several of your mentors, but you've also had the opportunity to maybe serve as a bit of a mentor for some other folks who are some you know, familiar names. Uh, so we'd love to just get your perspective on, on serving as a mentor and maybe you know, give you a chance to shout out some of those folks, but then also just tell me about the current team. Are you hiring the game plan? And for people that want to stay in touch, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, we absolutely want uh, the best and brightest uh, to come to Maryland. We're definitely hiring. And as we start to imagine what the next campaign for the University of Maryland will look like, uh, that will definitely include uh, more individuals that uh, want to come here, learn and grow. And um, so the answer to that is yes. And I've got the the easiest email in the world, Hodge at umd.edu. So, um, you know, I think this idea of mentorship for me, I've always struggled like a lot of leaders. You've got a little bit of an imposter syndrome where, um, you know, what, how can I possibly mentor people um, where I'm still figuring things out? And I think um, that honesty um, in terms of where you're kind of joining um, becomes really the, the secret sauce in those relationships. And, you know, I, I've tried to really um, have a great sense of humor so that when I'm working with an individual, we're laughing a lot, and but we're also pushing one another. And um, certainly in a direct report relationship, I really, really try to push um, folks way outside their comfort zone 
um, once I understand kind of what that looks like. And so when, when you look at individuals that I've just had the pleasure uh, to work with, you look at uh, Rashonda Mahone, who's at NC State, you look at Heather Gregg, who's now a consultant for Huron, you look at Brian Danforth, who's now you know leading the Alumni Association at the University of Florida and um, just continues to do great things. You know, each of those relationships, those, those are individuals that were going to be great no matter what I did. And so um, it, it's, it's not that I played no role in their development, but they, they had all of that raw talent. And I think what I attempted to do is say, you know, our time together, we're going to one, um, expedite that growth in some measurable fashion. And you're going to be cognizant of um, the outcomes of our time together. And I think uh, in each instance, you can see careers that um, these are individuals that would come back and say, man, let me tell you about this thing that you did, Matt. Um, and at the time, you know, I'm not sure I, I didn't, wasn't walking around going, hey, I'm trying to be a great mentor. I think what I was trying to do is push individuals to um, kind of achieve at a level maybe that they didn't see. I was trying to get them to think in uh, a little bit differently. I was trying to challenge them without being challenging. Um, you know, and that that's a real complicated process and I get it wrong as, as much as I get it right. But I think um, there's been no greater gift to me and I save the texts, I save the emails when individuals that I've had the opportunity to work with send me an email uh, or some communication and they just they just say thank you and um, you know it, it's um, it's rare but man when it happens you really appreciate it whether you're a mentor or a mentee I love that Matt and I just have to say I know we're at time but our producer Lillian will kill me if I don't ask you to conclude with the midnight monster truck mission and then we'll wrap if you have a couple minutes <laughs> yeah, so you asked me that uh, big gift story and uh, the uh, monster truck midnight mission. Um, so this was uh, Senior DO, College of Education. Which, by the way, everybody should name their gifts. Like we need more kind of, yeah. if it was a movie or an episode, what would it be called? But go yeah, for it. I love it. I mean, I think there's an opportunity to workshop that brand and turn it into a podcast in of itself. Um, so yeah, I, I had been working with a donor and this really was going to be my first million dollar gift at the university of Florida. So it was a big deal. Um, closing a million dollar gift may seem like just a random arbitrary number in our industry. It, it really signifies a demarcation of professional growth and allows you to really feel as though you belong. And so this was important to me. Um, I had the right donor. Um, she was extremely well cultivated. Um, everyone at the University of Florida had told me it would never happen, that all the people that were good at this business had tried this um, and they had tried unsuccessfully with her husband. And um, and I working in the College of Education did what a lot of College of Education donors do is um, we end up dealing with the wives because uh, for land-grant institutions, 
you've uh, the College of Education was predominantly female for for many many years as as those colleges evolve. And so I had this great relationship. Our dean had a great relationship with this individual. She lived in Charleston. I had done the concept paperwork, um, felt really good about this proposal. So I go to the airport and uh, the plant, the uh, air, airline is closed. No flights out. And um, I'm like, OK, Charleston, Gainesville, no problem. I go to the rental desk. They're, um, they're like, there's no cars. There's a, f- a festival in town and uh, there's there's zero cars. And so now I'm really distraught because it means I have this opportunity on her schedule that took a long time to get. I had the proposal. I had the timing. I knew that this was a really important lever in this relationship and that um, I needed to take full advantage of it. So I, I'm really feeling feeling despondent. And this guy at the counter says, wait, I can drive you across town. We have one truck that we can rent to you. And I'm like, you know, in your mind, when you think of a rental truck, I, I'm like, okay, uh, let's do it. So I hop in this, this guy's personal car. He drives me across town and I get there. And this car is like, a four by four uh, truck that has giant tires. And I'm really, really overwhelmed by this. I'm like, okay. So now, you know, it's, it's already, the sun is going down and I realize I'm going to have to drive through the night. And if you've ever driven uh, from Florida up to Charleston, you go through the low country. It's, it's just a little bit much. And I've got this giant uh, grave digger truck, you know, it looks like in my mind, it's a monster truck. It probably was just a Ford F-150 with big tires. But I arrive uh, to Charleston. I've called my I'm calling my wife the entire time. I arrive in Charleston like two in the morning, get up the first thing in the morning to go to uh, meet at her home. And she's got a guest who only later do I hear the story, peeks out the window. And now I've pulled up in this gated community in a giant four by four truck. And her her dear friend just leans over and says, it appears your friend from Florida has arrived. And so it was like just this awful uh, vision of this just Florida man arriving, uh, you know, at her home to and, you know, in hindsight, we both told the story. Uh, it was really, really funny showing up at her home. Um, I promise you a truck like this had never pulled into the uh, the community. And um, it ended up being a great story, a great gift. But a uh, little bit of lesson on tenacity, I will tell you that, because I, I was not going to uh, take no for an answer to get to Charleston. Matt, I love that story. What a great uh, conclusion. Also, some sneaky good customer service by that guy at the rental agency. So yeah. let's not forget the unsung hero of the story. But I love that. I also will say on the official Monster Jam website, the blue truck is referred to as Blue Thunder. So I think we should refer to the truck as Blue Thunder from yeah, here on. I think, I think that's, that's totally appropriate, Brent. Well, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you doing this for uh our community. I think people uh, get a lot out of it.
ton of fun. Matt, thank you so much from uh, student calling to Blue Thunder. We covered a lot of ground. Wish you the absolute best as you continue to settle in and look forward to continuing to get to know you and your team. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.